Barry Fox, and it turns out I am Norman's nephew, uh, and I want to introduce you to a family member that we're all quite proud of. So I'm going to do the, the time-honored presentation technique of doing an audience survey before we start here. Um, so I'm going to throw up the names of some pretty prominent Western authors from Montana, and if I could see a show of hands if you've heard of these people. A.B. Guthrie? Everyone. Did we all read The Big Sky in high school? Yeah. yeah. Um, Dorothy M. Johnson? Yeah. The Hanging Tree, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Dan Cushman? Yeah, oh, we've all heard of him. And then, um, and the family members don't need to raise their hands on this one. Before you heard about this presentation, how many of you had heard of Norman Fox? A handful. That's, that's good. But um, I believe that, that primarily due to an early death, Norman's, uh, Norman's name has kind of fallen from the pages of history, and that's one reason I wanted to present here tonight. So let's talk about Mr. Fox. He was born on May 26, 1911 in Salt St. Marie, Michigan, so 103 years ago this week. His parents were Alfred and Florence Fox, and going a little bit to the region that Norman was born in, the city is on the St. Mary River right between Lake Superior and Lake Huron in the Great Lakes region. So half the town was situated on the U.S. side of the river and the other half was, was in, yeah, on the Canadian side. So my grandfather was a, was a Canadian citizen and his family was farmers and so forth up in Canada. And my grandmother was a U.S. citizen, born in Michigan. But since she was in the town and born in the hospital, and the hospital was on the Canadian side of the town, she was technically born in Canada, but was an American. Um, okay, yes. But um, back then, there was no border patrol. There were no border stops. People just went back and forth freely. Uh, before long, there were more kids added to the family. So here's a picture of Norman when he was about five years old and a brother named Elmer and a sister named Zelda. So meanwhile, in Montana, during the same time, there was a land rush in progress. And the reason for that is when they wanted to build railroads between Chicago and the Midwest and the western coast, the U.S. government funded it by giving the railroads millions of acres of land. Um, the railroads sold what they called the good land, large tracts of land, to um, the interests that they could raise money from. So, for example, millions of acres were sold to some guy in Washington State named Warehouse, Warehouser for timber. Um, but they had all this land that, they, that had been deeded to them by the U.S. government that they felt was, quote, useless, and they wanted to do something with it. So what they decided to do is try and attract homesteaders to Montana. So what I have here are just some of the ads that the railroads uh, built to try and attract people to homestead in Montana. Um, and another thing is that uh, the U.S. Congress got in on the act and tried to help the railroads by relaxing the homesteading rules three times in the early 1900s just to attract people to move to Montana and homestead in the north central region. And I like this ad here. It's like, come to Montana and you'll just like dig up gold. It, it'll be that easy. So. so my grandfather came from a family of 
farmers, and my dad has told me that my grandfather's mother always wanted him to farm. His, his day job was a bridge carpenter, uh, and she had always wanted him to farm. He also had a sister and brother-in-law named Harry and Belle Langman that had moved to Montana already and were homesteading. So in 1917, uh, Alfred and Florence picked up the family and moved to a homestead near Geraldine. So, and I'll, I'll be, in the interest of disclosure, I'll say that I, I looted shamelessly from Google Images for pictures for this presentation. And this is a homestead in Montana in 1916, but it wasn't the one from our family. But it shows you what the conditions were like for people living in that environment. Yeah. And then here's a picture of uh, looking west from the, from the Geraldine area towards the Highwood Mountains. And it just gives you an idea of the type of land they were dealing with when they tried to homestead. So they moved to Montana in 1917. And then in 1918, two things happened. One was the Great War ended. Why do we care? It's because it had driven up the price of wheat. It had driven the price of wheat up to record highs, which has really enabled people to successfully homestead. Um, and the other thing is a drought began in Montana. Uh, this is a picture I found of Montana in 1917. That winter, there was hardly any snow. The next spring, there was hardly any rain. And for several years after that, there was hardly any precipitation. Some people have uh, asserted that, in fact, it wasn't a drought. It's that Montana had had the luck of having unrealistic amounts of precipitation every year for a 10 to 20 year period, which made all those homesteads successful. And it seemed like the land rush was a good deal. And then everything reverted to normal precipitation. And no one could make a go of it as a dry land farmer. Uh, one other thing I want to point out. There's a book here, uh, it's called Montana High, Wide, and Handsome. It's a history of Montana written by a Great Falls author named Joseph Kinsey Howard. He was a, a newspaper reporter for a newspaper called the Great Falls Leader, which was back when Great Falls had two daily papers. Um, and he wrote this book, which uh, is well regarded. Anyway, I found some chapters in here about the land rush that gave me a lot of information about it as well. So a really good book, and we'll be getting back to this. So uh, the family arrived in Montana one year too late to really make a go of homesteading. And in less than a year, they were out of business as farmers. So my grandfather moved the family to Great Falls, and he resumed his profession as a bridge carpenter. Uh, he helped build the 10th Street Bridge in Great Falls. And this is something I just found out a couple years ago. Uh, I was at the Great Falls Library, and they had a retrospective on the building of the bridge. And it's a single continuous pour of concrete that they worked on for nearly a year, running cement trucks 24 hours a day as the carpenters built the forms as they poured cement and went. So it's a very unique design. Um, and apparently, my grandfather was involved in that. After that, he got a job at the Anaconda smelter in Great Falls. And he was on what was called a carpenter gang meaning whenever they needed carpentry stuff done, they would send them off to do whatever was needed. And in the meantime, more children came along to the family. So earlier we saw these two, Elmer and Zelda. They were joined by uh, three more brothers named Melvin, David, and Joe. 
In, in the meantime, what was Norman up to? Uh, this is by this time the early 1920s and by the late 1920s as well. My dad was told by his elder siblings that Norman loved to make up stories. He also liked to make up games for all the kids to play. So he was kind of like the eldest one of the, their group and he was always making up things to entertain his brothers, sisters, and friends. He attended Great Falls High School. And <laughs> I'll get to that. <laughs> Someone just said Paris Gibson. Yes. I didn't know this either until till, uh, I talked to my dad about this. The original high school was in this building and it was called Great Falls Central. And in 1931, the current building, this, the high school building opened up. It was called the new school back then. And then, uh, interestingly enough, my dad attended school in the same building, but by then it was Paris Gibson Junior High School. And now in Great Falls, it's a center called the Paris Gibson Square. During the summers, Norman and uh, his oldest brothers were sent up to his aunt and uncle's homestead near Sweetgrass, Montana. So uh, apparently my grandfather's sister and brother-in-law were able to make a go of it. And uh, the kids were sent up to help out on the farm in the summer. They learned to ride horses. They had to do all the farm work. They had to buck bales and all that stuff. And as you saw from the picture of the homestead earlier, there weren't things like electricity and running water. And Norman said that what they did at night, the only thing they had for entertainment was to sit around and the old timers would tell stories about the Old West. So that's how Norman came to really learn about all the heroes, the sagas, the cowboys, the, the, the robbers, all the stuff about the Old West and came to really develop an interest in it. Uh, sitting around the campfire because there was nothing better to do. Meanwhile, during the same time period back in Michigan, a girl was born and raised and her name was Rosalie Spaulding. Uh, she went to the University of Michigan and this is her graduation picture and that's her in the center right there. She taught, once she graduated, she taught English in Michigan for a couple years, and then she moved to Great Falls and started teaching at Great Falls High in 1927, uh, where she met a junior student who was on the student newspaper and was dabbling with writing. So, um, and they remained friends after he graduated. This, by the way, was the picture Rosie submitted and is in all the Great Falls yearbooks for her student teacher or her teacher photo. So, what did Norman do next? He graduated from high school. Uh, there's his high school graduation picture. Yeah. He, want, he wanted to go to college and become a journalist, and his parents said, eh, eh we have no money for college. So he took, a, he took a correspondence course to become a bookkeeper or an accountant, uh, and that's what he began doing to work. He began writing short stories. Um, and he submitted his first short story for publication. Uh, it was called Brother of the Eagle. He submitted it to Liberty Magazine, and he submitted it, submitted it sorry, to the magazine on February 12, 1932. The magazine did reject the, the story, but you may be asking yourself, how do I know such specific information 
about when, where, why, and how he did this story? And the answer is, I learned it from Norman himself. He was a, a, an amazing record keeper, and I'm going to give you an example of one of the records he did. So, this is for like one of his stories. He would type the title of the story, the number of words, the number of the story that it was in sequence, the magazine he submitted it to, and the date it was submitted. And then I'm guessing this was the date it was rejected. And <laughs> I think it's a fair assumption because when you get down here, you see the first story that was accepted. Yes. So, yeah. And it, it says, yeah, where, when it was accepted, who published it, how much he was paid, and so forth. Now, to keep these records, he had to get bond paper, punch holes in it, put the ringers on it, and then get out a paper and pencil, or a paper and pen, or a ruler and pen, and make all these lines. Then, remember, this occurred over time. So every time he had an update, he had to put this sheet of paper in his typewriter, scroll to the right line, and add the date it was rejected, and then do the next line, and so forth. So um, very meticulous record keeper. Here's another uh, one that I found. And this was kind of like the running total of, of uh, his career as a writer. Um, he lists the story, and the columns are the amount paid for the story, the running total for the given year, and then the lifetime total. So, yeah, and then he just keeps on going down. And um, so, yeah, uh, the one thing I looked at this and thought, he would have gone nuts if he had been able to see Microsoft Excel. He would have just loved it to pieces. So, but yes. So, let's talk about the 1930s. Norman's out of high school. Um, his father died unexpectedly in 1935. Um, Norman helped his mom get the estate settled. Uh, and helped her get set up so she could get by with uh, the money they had from the life insurance and so she could make a living and continue raising the rest of the family who was still at home. Uh, his sister had already uh, moved out of state, was in her 20s and was married. Uh, but Norman and his other brother, his other older brother Elmer, really helped with the family. And in fact, they were more like father figures to these younger boys than, than brothers. I should, by the way, this was, this was Gibson Park in Great Falls, and Norman, Elmer, Melvin, David, Joe, Robert, Richard. <laughs> this is my dad. <laughs> so, okay. And then about a year later, uh, Norman married a woman he'd been dating for several years named Patsy. And he continued dabbling in writing. Okay, Norman and his brother Elmer worked at a place called Pat's Body Works. And um, basically not long after the invention of the automobile came the invention of the automobile accident. <laughs> and Pat's Body Works was a body shop in Great Falls. Um, Norman was the bookkeeper and accountant for the business and my uncle Elmer was a, a metal worker who helped repair the cars. I'm gonna digress here. Um, Elmer, Later in life, as a hobby, restored Model Ts, and I think it was from his work in, in body works when he was a young man. 
Um, Pat's Body Works went out of business in 1937 due to the Great Depression. And uh, so Norman found himself unemployed with a wife to support. Uh, and that's when he made a decision that uh, changed his life and has me standing here today. Uh, he decided to write full time. So my reaction to that is, full-time writer, what's he thinking? Because I'm looking at his track record to date, and he had written a total of about two dozen short stories, and I know that because I have the records. Um, he'd had a grand total of three, three published, which means he'd had nearly two dozen short stories rejected. And we saw the, the, the records, he'd had them rejected over and over and over. Uh, he had not had a story published in nearly three years. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, the conventional wisdom these days is if you want to be a writer, keep your day job, write in your spare time, get yourself established, then try to make a go of it. He was unemployed in the Great Depression, and he decided to go for it. Um, so the question I asked myself is, who was this man? So I thought I'd take a minute and describe to you a few things about him as a person. Um, we've already talked a little bit about his love of the Old West. Uh, he was a fanatic about research. I in, in his effects, there are just notebooks and notebooks of stuff where he typed up things and tidbits and bits of history that were of interest to him. And it wasn't just dates and times and facts and figures. It was a lot of how stuff worked like how the steamboats fueled themselves, how they pulled over at night because the rivers weren't safe to, to, to navigate at night, just stuff like that. He, he was a research fanatic. Um, in his personal life, he was a, an avid photographer. Uh, he was making color slides when, uh, I don't know anyone else who was making color pictures. And, and uh, slides back then, you actually got the, the, the slide back from developing and you had to build a little metal case for it. So. He was very, very much into photography. He loved music. He, uh, in fact, he never owned a television. He, he was more interested in reading or listening to music than, than television. And he had a, just an amazing sense of humor. He, uh, I would describe it almost as a nonconformist and an absurd sense of humor, a black sense of humor. If any of you have ever heard of the musician Tom Lehrer, um, yeah. <laughs> extremely controversial in his day, but in my mind, extremely funny, but very, very dark humor. I'm going to give you a couple examples, though. Yeah. Remember this book, The Montana History I was telling you about? In the, in the introduction to the, this edition, uh, the introduction or the, the foreword was done by A.B. Guthrie. And he's writing to the author of the book, Joseph Kinsey Howard. Um, first, he's talking about how Kinsey Howard is into a lot of politics. But then he says, I'd like readers to know, too, that you weren't forever chasing political causes, that you could enjoy the little achievement of having eaten six steaks in six states in six nights on that wonderfully irresponsible road trip that you and Norman Fox and I took. So... Sounds like a dare to me or something, but, but that was one, something like that was like, amuse them and they went for it. 
Another example is one time Norman made a bet with another author. It was uh, for $20, which around in today's uh, money would be several hundred dollars, about who could write the worst, schlockiest, sleaziest story and get it published. Um, now, Norman knew that he was a writer in Westerns, which were kind of not considered the highest literature ever, but but they were going for the, 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 the lowest rung they could find. And Norman won the bet. <laughs> and here's the magazine. It was called Mystery Novels. The cover is Maidens for Bondage. Um, <laughs> woo woo. And yeah, it looks like there's bad guys and, and damsels in distress on the cover. And it features, it features thrilling stories such as um, well, four terror-filled short stories, Courtship of the Vampire, Hall of Crawling Desire, Bride of the Stone Age Ripper, <laughs> and Mate of the Demon by Norman A. Fox. So, just another example of, it. Just, this was, um, please hold. It, I believe it was the late 30s, but um, December 1939. So, yeah. So um, just another thing, it just piqued his sense of humor to, to try and just see how, how low he could go, and he succeeded. Yes, it is listed in his records, and I, I don't have it with me tonight, but yes. Um, it would have been on the order of like $20 for the story. So... so the heading of my last slide was full-time writer, and then the heading of this slide is full-time writer. Norman got to work. In 1937, he was laid off. He had not sold a story in, in three years, and he had only had three published ever. He sold th four more stories before the year was out. He sold 18 stories in 1938. That's more than one a month, and he made enough to live on, although it was a tight year. He sold 32 stories in 1939 while also working on novels. Uh, and he made above the national income average from those stories. So in his second full year as a writer, he was making more than the average income of, any, of your average person in the United States. So, and here's a picture of him around that time with his uh, writing accoutrements. I find it interesting that there's a bunch of books here, and they're all Old West books. Um, so I talked about his research, and then some pulp magazines, which must be ones he was published. Notice that there's a picture of Charlie Russell's In Without Knocking on the Wall. I pr I'm assuming he used that for inspiration. Something else that happened in 1939. He was one of four authors selected for the Westinghouse time capsule. That was a time capsule they did for the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. It's a time capsule for 5,000 years. Um, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I googled it and I was pretty amazed because, you know, 5,000 years ago we had writing. It was hieroglyphics and no one was ever able to decode it until they found a codex called the Rosetta Stone. Otherwise we still wouldn't be able to know what the Egyptians were saying. So in this time capsule they actually put in instructions to whoever finds it as to how to interpret English language and how the phenomes or the, the, the whatever the words are for word sounds and how to sound it out so that they can uh, 
they can uh, do that. Um, and Norman was one of four Western authors whose works were put in the time capsule. So Norman began writing, and he was making a go of it, and he picked a good time to write. Um, yes, 10 cent Western. You ever hear the word dime Western? You know, and, uh, you know, I was thinking that ever since writing began, which I'm thinking of uh, Homer and the Iliad, all the way up to X-Men, Days of the Future Past, which opened this past week, what do people want for entertainment? They want heroes and they want action. So um, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, the way people in America and other places wanted action was in Westerns. So there was a huge number of magazines. I've, I've pulled up the scans of a few of them that I'll show you just to show you some of the variety. And, but think about it. This was a weekly magazine. This says June 28, 1941. There's, there's 10 stories in this magazine times 20 magazines times four per month. You know, the publishers had to have a huge influx of stories just to keep up with demand. But... As soon as authors got to be uh, liked, the, the readers would demand them. They wanted more stories from certain authors, and they'd start, getting, they'd start getting mentioned on the covers and so forth. So I'll just show you a few of these magazines. Here's one, Dime Western. Here's one, Ten Story Western. Something I want to point out, the name Sands on the cover is actually Norman. He used pseudonyms when he, when he wrote. Um, because he was selling so many stories to so many magazines that he was submitting under different names. Uh, and Dave Sands is one of his pseudonyms, so here he is on the cover under a different name. Uh, one, of his, one of his most commonly used pseudonyms was Clint McLeod. And he, yes, <laughs> and he used that name because it thought it was a silly name. Um, but that was his favorite pseudonym. Here's Western Tales. You notice that Norman A. Fox is listed. Starting to make the covers. Star Western. Um, N. Fox at the top there for Big Book Western. I like this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's look at this. Wait a minute. Oh, this one, yeah. Why is it called Dime Western when it's for 25 cents? That's what I want to know. But I really like this cover because... Yeah, it's a book-length novel by Norman, D. Norman Fox. And also, the cover story is a, a story by Montana author Dan Cushman. So here's a, here's a romance-style uh, magazine, but there was a lot of crossover for Westerns. And so Norman, Norman didn't hesitate to submit to other publications because if they could put a romance angle on it and publish it in a romance magazine, they went for it. And and I just handed out the book The Devil Saddle to, to Vivian here tonight, so I can get it to you in magazine form if you want. Here's another one. Western short stories. Here's three Western novels. Another one with Norman on the, the front. Another romance themed uh magazine. The Bell, the Bushback Range. That's right. And furthermore, it's a novel of the Lusty West by Norman A. Fox. Now, <laughs> I want to point out that 
Uh, Norman really, really was, um, I would say, straight-laced regarding to, to ultra-violence and sex in his books. And in fact, uh, uh, towards the end of his, his career and later in his life, he was getting a lot of pressure from publishers to really spice up and make his books saucy. And <laughs> he refused to do it. So I am convinced that this novel, The Lusty West, was something that was put in by the publisher. And I'm sure that the, the, the heroine showing a, quite a bit of thigh there was something that the publisher put in as well. So um, Norman's heroines wore uh, riding, riding skirts that were split at the legs like jeans so that they were chased. <laughs> Two books for 25 cents. We can tell this is the bad guy by his mustache. Uh -huh. Another one with Norman prominently mentioned on the cover. Similar with this one. Each, each of these is a different type, uh, by the way, a different magazine. So it, just to demonstrate the, the many, many different uh, publications out there at the time. Uh, 44 Western. And then I put, I put this one up because I really like the cover. Um, I was thinking, you know, I don't know about you, but I often find myself handcuffed with the heroine having to turn her grind wheel to get me unmanacled while I shoot it out with the bad guys, even though I'm injured while coolly smoking a cigarette with more bad guys sneaking up behind me. So, yeah, probably a daily occurrence, right? And here's another one with a, a novel by, or a story by Norman on the front. And I want you to, to just take a look at this for a minute, just kind of memorize it, and I'll get back to why I want you to do that in a minute. Okay. Soon after that. We just talked about 1931. In early 1941, his first hardback novel was published. Now, is it me, or is there something very familiar about the image on this novel cover? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've read with other, other novel or authors and books that they really have no control over who, what gets put on the cover of their books, and most, many authors, authors complain about that, but I thought that was pretty funny that it was basically the same picture. Um, same year, he sold and had published his second novel called Gun Handy. Uh, something else happened that year, which was what's called the Day of Infamy when uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and World War II started. Norman was drafted, but he failed the physical. Um, he had the, the flat feet that all of us foxes seem to have which made him a poor candidate for marching uh, dozens of miles per day in the army. And he also had poor enough eyesight to where he was exempted from serving. Uh, but four of his brothers did serve overseas, three in the United States Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific, and one in the U.S. Army Air Corps in India and China. And there's a picture of them in 1946 when they got back from the war, uh, demonstrating what soldiers would do to pass the time during those long voyages on the troop ship, which was shoot dice. Um, so it was good news for the family and that all four of the sons returned home safe, but Norman had some bad news in his private life. 
he and his wife Patsy had reached the end of their road together and were separated and divorced in 1946. Meanwhile, throughout the 40s, Norman continued publishing like mad. He had 16 novels published between 1941 and 1949. I'm just going to walk through them slowly. Lord Sixgun, I'll get back to that in a bit. And then um, Shadow on the Range. Um, so each year, year over year, he's publishing more than one book a year. And at the same time, he was publishing between 15 to 30 short stories. And a lot of them were, were not short stories. They were 70 to 80 page short novels. So um, he was cranking out the work. And he was, he was um, selling a lot of books. So. We've talked a little bit about the era in which he was he was uh, writing. I want to talk a little bit about his writing style. You know, Mark Twain started a, a, a phenomenon where he used the actual vernacular of the people of the time, and it was very radical for the literature, compared to a few years earlier when um, James Fenimore Cooper had Indians talking in thee and thou type language in his novels. Um, Norman, Norman tried to do that type of style in his books, and he was very faithful to the language of the time. Um, we've talked about his research into the Old West. Um, and the, he had a reputation for telling ripping yarns, but, but factually grounded in the history of the time and factually accurate for how the people behaved at the time. Um, and I was going to throw in a caveat there. Uh, so being act, being faithful to the the language of the time, some of his real, particularly his earlier stuff, used words that today we would consider very racially offensive, particularly with respect to, for example, Chinese workers on the railroads and things like that. And then another thing is, uh, my son read one of Norman's books, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said, "Well, I have a question." And I go, well, "What's your question?" And he goes. Was Norman really that misogynist, or did he do that as a plot device and make the character that way? Character that way? And uh, the fact of the matter is, is Norman was not in the least bit misogynist. I'll get to that in, in, in a bit. Uh, and in fact, I believe that his women characters were progressive for the time. He had strong female characters that held their own with the cowboy hero and so forth. But he was a product of his times and how women were viewed and treated and considered was very different from now. So that is one area where his books are a little dated. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll digress into a, one anecdote. I asked my dad, when Norman got laid off in the 1930s, how come his wife didn't go to work while he tried to be a writer? And, and he said, oh, a woman wouldn't be given a job in the 1930s. It was the Depression. If a job was available, it had to go to a man. And you know, in our minds today, that's mind-boggling. But back then, that was you know how it was. So, just just to to point out, some of his writing is a little dated in that regard. So I thought I would have some fun with you all. Um, I just talked about Norman being uh, faithful to the language of the West. So I was going to do a little trivia quiz about 
Do you know what some of these words might mean? Calaboose. Oh. Okay, I'll just give you all A's right now. <laughs> all right, you're right. It's a jail. A sky pilot. Wow. It's a preacher. A sky pilot is, yeah, someone who's a preacher man. Uh-huh, uh-huh. By the way, the only way I know any of these words is from reading Norman's works. I had never heard any of this stuff. A nester. That's right, a homesteader, a sodbuster. Mm -hmm. Exactly what my family tried to be by Geraldine. An owl hoot. Good, good guess. Any others? A partier? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is one that was apparently quite common in the Old West. It's really fallen out of use. It was a bad guy. It was an outlaw. And it was, yeah. And uh, uh, it was also called riding the owl hoot trail meant you've gone to the bad side of the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A tin toter. Yep, yep. That's a sheriff. Stony Lonesome. This was something very specific to Montana. And it didn't matter uh, how good or bad you were, this is something you really didn't want to deal with. So if you had a rip roaring night in the saloon in town, you ended up in the calaboose. But if you were a really bad person, you ended up at the Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge. And they did not like it there. The makings. Ah, did everyone hear that? The makings are the making or fixings for a cigarette. Um, you roll your own, exactly. You had your bag of tobacco and your papers, and if you were really good, you could roll a cigarette one-handed. So, I'll go aside. Norman had a story called The Makings, and the literal interpretation of the title was rolling a cigarette, but uh, the actual um, theme or whatever was the makings of a person, their, their, their makeup. So, 40 a month and found. Right, wages? And someone said something about a cowboy? That's right. Meals, yes. That, yes. For, it was the wage of a cowboy back in the, in the old uh, cow days. So I showed two $20 gold pieces here. And found was anything you found that was worth keeping, you were allowed to keep. So, so if you stumbled across a lost Dutchman's gold mine, it was yours to keep. But yes. So that was uh, uh, the wage of a cowboy. So shifting gears, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Norman's uh, use of the history of Montana in his books. So who can tell me what 3777 is? Yeah, everyone knows what that is. Okay, now this audience knows everything, so we'll see about this. Can anyone tell me who Vigilante X was? I give up. Okay. 
Yeah, that's right. His name was X Beadler, and he was like the terminator for the vigilantes. He was the one who went and hunted down the bad guys and brought them to justice. And so there's a story in this book. It's an anthology of short stories uh, by Norman called Bet the Wild, Bet the Wild Queen, and it's, it features X Beadler uh, tracking down some bad guys in Fort Benton. Uh, and and a, a a character that was was uh, involved with that stuff. So yeah. Did people hear that? He was X because he didn't sign his name. He just signed it with an X. Yes. Okay. Okay. The riverboat far west. It's a steamboat, that's correct. Does anyone know the significance of it? Fort Benton, yeah. Mm -hmm. Who said that? You did nice, nicely done, yes. This was a, a, a steamboat that was specifically designed for the rivers in Montana. It only took 20 inches of water to float even when it was fully loaded. and. I didn't know this until I was reading about it for this presentation. It was the floating command post for the U.S. Army on the, the war against the combined Cheyenne and Sioux Indians where Custer met his fate. And in fact, uh, Norman wrote a story called Only the Dead Ride Proudly that is from the point of view of a deckhand on this steamship. Now, when I first read this story in high school, I thought Norman made up about a riverboat because I'd read about Custer's last stand and never heard about no riverboat. Um, and then a few years ago, I was reading about the history of steamships and said, and the world speed record for 500-mile trek in a steamboat was the far west after Custer's last stand as they tried to get to Fort Abraham Lincoln in Bismarck, North Dakota to get the word out that this disaster had happened. And in fact, to do it, they had to steam not only day but night, which was incredibly dangerous. But the... Uh, Yes, Norman used that tidbit of history for his story, and uh, a little Montana history for you. Um, speaking of embarrassing moments in the history of the U.S. 7 Cavalry, can people tell me um, what what the big gaffe they made during the the retreat of the Nez Perce in uh, the late 1870s? <laughs> they thought they were in Canada. Yes. Yes, the, the U.S. Army had the, the, the natives trapped in the Clark's Fork Canyon. General Howard was coming from the south, entering the canyon, and the, the 7th Cavalry was posted at the north end of the canyon to trap them and finally stop them because the entire country was terrorized by these Indians that kept getting away and kept outfighting three entire regiments of the U.S. Army. Um, the 7th Cavalry thought that the Indians had taken a different path and they left post to go and capture them because they wanted to get the glory of the capture, which allowed the, the Nez Perce to escape and get into central Montana. So um, Norman took the events of that summer. He also took uh, the Appaloosa Stallions, which were the famous horses of the Nez Perce, and used it to write a, a story set in the Madison Valley in the aftermath of, of, that, of that, those events. And I don't want to give anything away, but I, so I won't say whether or not that is the famous yellow scarfs worn by the soldiers of the 7th Cavalry back in the day. 
Can anyone name this picture? Last of the 5,000, that's right. And I'm thinking, heck, it's probably down the hall here somewhere, the original, right? Um, Norman wrote a book called Stormy in the West uh, about the end of the longhorn cattle industry in Montana and that winter is which brought it basically to a complete end. Uh, range wars, you know, there was only one or two range wars in, in Western history, but there was a lot of tension when the homesteaders started moving in. I'm going to read you something here. This is said by Charlie Russell in a letter to a friend uh, from this book, Montana High, White, and Handsome. And Charlie Russell said, Bob, you wouldn't know the town or country either. It's all grass side down now. Where once you rode circle and I night wrangled, a gopher couldn't graze now. The boosters say it's a better country than it ever was, but it looks like hell to me. I liked it better when it belonged to God, and it was sure his country when we knew it. So, you know, that was uh, Charlie Russell lamenting the end of the open range uh, and the arrival of, of the nesters or the sodbusters. It was all grass side down, which means it was plowed under. And Norman wrote a book called Shadow on the Range, which was about the tensions between the ranchers and the, and the, the farmers. Has anybody here seen the, the movie Heaven's Gate that was filmed in Montana? And took, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry if you had to see it, but um, it would, that was the theme of the movie, which was uh, the war between the cattlemen and the immigrant homesteaders that were rolling into Montana at the time. Okay, so enough trivia. Let's get back to Norman's life. Something happened on July 7th, 1949. Remember that teacher from Michigan that was Norman's friend? Well, they got married in Virginia City. And uh, I'm not 100% certain this is a picture from their wedding day, but I'm pretty convinced it is because I see how happy they are. And then here's a picture of Norman Rosalie with Rosalie's parents, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Spaulding. And somewhere between Rosalie's childhood and, and the 1940s, the Spaulding family moved to uh, Helena, Montana. And so uh, there's several, if you hear the name Spalding or, or know some Spaldings, there's a good chance they're related to Rosalie. Let's talk about her. We saw her as a little girl. Um, she was an English teacher at Great Falls High School for many, many years. Uh, Phyllis here in the front row told me tonight that she had Rosalie as a teacher when she went to Great Falls High and then married Rosalie's brother uh, when she became an adult. Um, she was a writer in her own right. She, she won several national essay contests um, and a prize-winning cook. In the 1950s, she won the Pillsbury Bake Off, so she produced the best recipe for that year. Yes. Yes. Did you know her? Okay. Okay, sure. Um, she also loved cats. She was a cat person. Yes, a cat person. Yes. So, Norman loved to tease Rosalie a little bit in his books. And I got a couple examples of that. Right. So, this book starts out with... Uh, 
a reformed outlaw and his grizzled cowboy sidekick named Stumpy on a stagecoach rolling through the middle of Montana somewhere. Uh, it's like Montana anytime after early June, which means it was brown, it was the same, it was sear, it was dusty. Inside the stagecoach with them, with them is this very proper prim woman, and she finally says, land sakes, it's not only bad, there's nothing to see out here, but there's so much of it. Stumpy, suddenly touched by some obscure loyalty to the land, said, if you don't like it, why don't you go back where you came from? The, women, the woman gave him a stare that would have curdled acid. <laughs> Goes on to say, when they do introductions, I'm Miss Arabella Hatter of South Northwick, New Hampshire. I taught English in high school there these past 30 years. So <laughs> Norman having a, a school marm with 30 years experience, sound like anyone you know, um, just poking a little fun at Rosalie in this book. Then I have this book here. It's written by uh, a man talking about Western authors who had their, their books made into Western movies in the 1950s. He has a chapter on Norman. And he's talking about the book Roughshod. And in, in his chapter, he, before he gets into the making of the movie, he gives a, a synopsis of the story. And he goes, the novel begins as Reb Kittredge rides a stagecoach towards the ludicrously named town of Sleeping Cat. So the, the author here is stymied by who the heck in their right mind in a Western novel would name a town Sleeping Cat? Well, it would be Norman because he's making fun with Rosalie about her love of cats. So, meanwhile, the demand for Norman stuff was, is worldwide. He's published to the entire English-speaking world. Um, his, his novels and stories have been con translated, I should say, into Danish, Swedish, and Afrikaans uh, in South Africa. Um, also translated into Dutch. Yes, and I think it's kind of fun to look at the, the language, even though you don't speak it, Shadowing over the range. <laughs> well, that, maybe that's a book we saw earlier called Shadow on the Range. You know, what are the possibilities? Um, the French, yeah. And that's Jimmy Stewart, and they talk about Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy. I'll get to that in a minute. German. Italian. I notice all the Italian books feature... Uh, uh, ladies on the cover, yeah. Um, Norwegian. Um, Lord Sexlo Lord Sexlover. Um, remember, we there was a book called Lord Six Gun. So I don't speak a word of Norwegian, but I will wager that is Six Gun in Norwegian. The other thing I like about the Norwegians is they all have this sticker on them called Pony Book. So you know it's a Western because it's a Pony Book. And then also Spanish. These were published in, in Argentina. Now, I don't want to accuse these publishers of trying to punch up the titles to increase sales, but I do know a little Spanish. So this book was originally entitled Ghostly Hoofbeats, and I read El Valle de la Muerte, which is the Valley of Death. <laughs> Here's another one. It's the Feathered Sombrero. And if you look at the original dust jacket, it's the exact same sombrero on the cover. I mean, it's identical. 
But the title is El Rancho del Diablo, the ranch of the devil. So I think they maybe were trying to punch up the titles a little to increase sales. And then uh, my brother, Norman Fox, who is named after Norman, found this book. And he sent it to my dad and said, Dad, I found another book of Norman's from overseas. And uh, my dad did all the research because uh, he'd never seen it, heard of it, or anything. And it turns out it was published in Yugoslavia in the 60s. So um, I would say you've kind of arrived as an author. If your works are being bootlegged behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. I've got five minutes here, so bear with. He continued publishing a novel per year. Um, he promoted Western writing in a big way. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Western Writers of America, and in fact was a mover and shaker in the organization in its early years. Um, he was on staff at the University of Montana and Montana State for their summer writing seminars. Here's a picture of A.B. Guthrie, a woman I have not yet identified, Norman and Joseph Kinsey Howard, uh, who published this history book I read from in downtown Missoula. Mildred Watson? Okay. Sure, and that, that's <laughs> good, thank you. Uh -huh. He also socialized with his peers in Montana. Uh, one I'll read to you. This was a letter Norman wrote to uh, a publisher in New York in 1952. You ask about Dan Cushman, he says to the publisher. I see him often, for we are located only seven blocks apart and are old friends. As a matter of fact, his people knew my people in Michigan long years ago, though Dan and I didn't meet until about 10 years ago. You surmise that Dan might be eating high on the hog these days. I suspect he is using stilts and a stepladder. Dan has just hit the jackpot. And he's talking about the sale of Stay Away Joe. But really good friends with Dan Cushman. Um, here's Norman with A.B. Guthrie and Joseph Kinsey Howard at Guthrie's Ranch. Another picture with Norman Rosley and Guthrie and his wife. Uh, Egad, it's the writer's swimsuit edition. <laughs> the Norman and, and, and Guthrie having drinks while they swim. And I love this picture. Here's a picture of Rosalie at the Guthrie Ranch with a, with a fawn. Mm -hmm. Okay, there was not only demand for Western books, there was a demand for Western movies, so the first one of Norma's books was made into a movie in 1953. Its world premiere was in Great Falls. And they brought all the stars up to Great Falls in order to, to, to do a proper world premiere. And then Norman uh, and the cast toured Montana, opening the movie in every major city in the week following. So there's a picture of Norman, Audie Murphy, and Susan Cabot, and so forth. Next movie was made in 1955 from his book, Tall Man Writing. Uh, a movie with Tony Curtis called The Rawhide Years. And by the way, these movies are still floating around. I saw this one on 
uh, either Turner Classic Movies or one of the cable movie Western channels uh, about a month ago. Yeah. And then uh, same with Night Passage. Night Passage is available on Netflix. Uh, Norman's belief was that this, move, this book was selected for a movie because Universal was looking for a story that had two male leads instead of just one. And they wanted a vehicle for Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy. Uh, the movie was filmed on location in Durango, Colorado because it had the only functional uh, steam train from the 1800s in the country. So here's some pictures from when they were making the movie. That's Jimmy Stewart uh, from a scene in the movie. And I would point out, if you do watch it, that you, or I warn you, that you do have to listen to Jimmy Stewart sing over and over about trains. <laughs> I really like this shot. It's a shot uh, with the train in action, uh, with the crew on the train and moving past a couple of the actors. The reason we have these pictures is that Norman and Rosalie spent several weeks on set with the cast and crew, and they had like the most wonderful time of their lives. There's uh, Norman with Audie Murphy. They'd become friends during the filming of Gunsmoke several years earlier and renewed that friendship. Uh, here's Norman with Audie's family. Another picture of Norman talking to Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy. Uh, Norman and Rosie with the, the Murphy family. Here's a, a picture of uh, one of the actors in the movie named Jack Elam. And what the crew, yeah, what, what the crew did is assign a copy of Norman's book uh, for him, which I found in a box of stuff in my dad's basement a year or so ago. But you're welcome to come up and take a look afterwards if you want to see it. It's, I think it's kind of a neat keepsake that Norman got. So when Norman sold his first movie, and I learned this from my brother, Brian, uh, he used the money from the movie rights to buy a house in Virginia City, Montana. Now back then it wasn't the tourist attraction it was now, it was literally a ghost town. And he bought this house up on the hill overlooking the town. Uh, he just loved Virginia City, he loved the history there, and he just loved the, the aura of the Old West that was permeating the town. Um, he, he felt it inspired his writing. and. Uh, he and Rosalie lived there seven months out of the year. And by all accounts, he loved every minute he spent there. So, moving through the late 1950s, Norman was diagnosed with cancer in 1958. He was operated on, they thought they got it. Um, the disease returned a little more than a year later in January of 1960. And he found out there was no treatment, and he had just a month or so to live. Uh, he kept working right up until his death on March 24, 1960. After his death, Rosalie worked to keep his legacy alive. Uh, she got one final uh, hardcover of his published. It was a book of short stories in 1968. She continued teaching at the College of Great Falls and at Shoto High School. Uh, she continued cooking. I think our household was the beta test site for every new recipe she tried, <laughs> which means we got a lot of a lot of desserts. Um, and promoting not just Norman but the Old West. She was active in Virginia City and several places, uh, keeping the Old West alive. She ended up passing away in 1986.
So I would like to thank you for taking the time to come tonight, and I'm going to finish with something Rosie wrote right after Norma died. And by the way, I love this picture. And this is why I, when I told my son, Norman was in no way misogynist. Rosie was in every way his equal in his life. Um, and they just loved each other so much. So right the day after Norman died, Jack Elam sent Rosalie a telegram with his condolences. And this is a letter she wrote him shortly after. Dear Jack and Jean, thank you for your telegram at the time of Norman's passing. Briefly, I want you to know that his last year was a good one. We did not know until late January that he was seriously ill, and not until the first of March that we could get no help. After the first terrible blow, Norman simply disregarded his own plight and set to work to help me and our friends. He was the bravest and finest person I have ever known. He loved his friends, and he understood the goodness in people, and he believed in them. And I think Rosie, too, was being left behind, was one of the bravest and finest people I've ever known as well. So thank you, and I'll open it up to questions.